Well, welcome to H2O Campus Church. If this is your first time here, it's great to have you here. It's great to have you with us. And uh, there are yellow connection cards in our uh, offering baskets. And if you want to get connected, that's a great way. Uh, otherwise, meet a core group member. And core group members, if there's anybody new here that you haven't seen before, make sure you meet them. Make sure you get them in your core group. All right. So for those who don't know me, I'm Elliot. I am uh, one of the staff here at H2O. Uh, the, the way I like to, to describe myself is I'm the one staff who's not a pastor, but I'm not an intern either. So I'm somewhere in between some quasi-land. So, yeah, exactly, Twilight Zone. But yeah, it's good to be up here preaching again. Uh, this is the first time I've uh, preached on a Sunday in a while, so it's kind of, kind of nice to have that back. Um, but yeah, also for those who don't know me, I studied here at U of M. I was a freshman a whopping 10 years ago. 2011. So everybody here who's freshman, I, I know what you feel like, but it was a little different back then. People were a little stranger. <laughs> but anyways, uh, I studied jazz music. I was a music major, uh, and I graduated in 2016, so five years ago. Uh, and I also came from New York, but not New York City. I came from a place in New York where there was cows, not people. Um. But yeah, so that's a little bit about me, just to get you know. I also, my wonderful wife, Debbie, over here in the orange dress, she is off and running slides, so kind of doing background stuff, but she's awesome, so make sure to give her a high five. Um, so today I want to share on a passage that uh, uh, is kind of close to my heart. Uh, it's, I can tell you what it is. It's Mark 5. Uh, but uh, I am ripping a little bit from a sermon that I heard like seven years ago from my parents' pastor. So I'm not plagiarizing, but I've taken a lot of inspiration from his. So just want to make that clear, put my resource out there. But uh, the, the topic of today's sermon is what is faith and what does it mean to have faith? And when we look in the passage today, we're going to look at two different examples of faith. But before we get into that, let's pray. So, Dear Jesus, we just thank you for being here with us today and being part of our worship, being part of our fellowship, and most of all, God, just uh, moving in our congregation, God. And we just pray that you will use this time to continue to draw us closer to you and closer to each other, and that you will speak through me as I'm sharing your word today. And we pray that all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so if you can flip to your Bibles, or scroll to your Bibles, or whatever you do these days, we got Mark 5. We're going to start at verse 21. I'll give you a minute to get there. 21 through the end of the chapter. And I'll repeat that again. Mark 5, 21 through 43. All right. Uh, I, I actually don't remember what translation I'm using, so it'll be a mystery. So it's probably ESV or NIV, but uh, I think ESV. But All right. So verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Well, let's pause there really quick. 
I gotta get my stopwatch going to make sure I don't go too long. You don't wanna be here for an hour. I don't wanna be here for an hour. So gotta make sure I control my time here. So let's pause. And basically at this point in Jesus' life, he had been doing ministry for a while. It wasn't his, his first foray into the crowds. But many, and many people have been healed, uh, taught by Jesus, and folks were starting to know about him, even if they hadn't met him in person. His name was kind of moving through. And the Pharisees were starting to notice as well. And many were already starting to talk about how they wanted to arrest him and other plans that would eventually lead to, to Jesus' crucifixion later. And he had also just, in verses before, cast out a demon on the other side of uh, the Sea of Galilee, uh, the country, they call it the country of the Gerasenes. Um, but now we're back on the west side of the Sea of Galilee and probably near Capernaum or in Capernaum. And, uh, and this is where we see Jesus come to, the, to there. And this crowd was gathered around him. Now, the Gospel of Luke actually mentions they were waiting for him and welcomed him. So they were uh, pretty excited to see Jesus. And uh, this was, of course, not unusual. As uh, this happened often to Jesus, people liked to hang around him. They liked free food and lots of miracles. No kidding. People still like the same thing. Um, but Mark, uh, Mark doesn't really state what Jesus was doing here, but we can probably pretty safely assume he was probably ministering or teaching or hanging out, doing something with these, this crowd. And it is here that we meet our first character of the story, Jairus. Uh, Mark describes him as the ruler of the synagogue, uh, the Greek word for this, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce it. Uh, I tried to beforehand, and just, it's, um, yeah, it's a Greek word. Basically mean ruler of the synagogue. Uh, <laughs> but typically, these men oversaw the synagogue's operation. Now, if you don't know what a synagogue is, uh, it's a central part of the local community in first century uh, uh, Jerusalem and uh, Judea. Um, there wasn't a central system behind it. It wasn't like... There's the temple, and then the temple's like, all you synagogues, do your thing. Uh, the synagogues were pretty much mostly formed and uh, done through the local community. Um, and they were used as for schools, communal meals, as hostels, courts, a place to collect and distribute charity, political meetings, hmm. and, uh, of course, as a place for local worship. And that was the, mainly their primary role. Now, Jairus's duty was to select readers— or teachers in the synagogue to examine the discourses of public speakers and to see that all things were done with decency and in accordance with their ancestral usage. Now, this is an extremely important position. He basically conducted everything that was going on in this probably the most important, at least culturally and community-wise, building and community in the whole city. So he was a well-respected man. He was also probably wealthy, and uh, well-educated. Now, Jesus taught frequently in synagogues itself, so Jairus probably would have at least heard of him or maybe even seen him several times. I, I don't know if we ever have a point where they mentioned that he met Jesus, but um, there probably would have been some something. He also would have been a person that people would have come to for, with requests. But here we see himself humbling himself to a lowly carpenter. And, of course, that lowly carpenter we know is Jesus, the king of kings. But not everybody fully realized that at this point. They just knew he was a man that was obviously working in miraculous ways, which uh, for them could mean he was a man of God. 
um, Mark says he fell at his feet while his little daughter, little daughter was at the point of death. And he was desperate. And here we see a little bit just of initial kind of faith. Uh, one of my favorite kind of uh, films of the gospel story, I didn't want to show it today because it would be too long and extend my sermon way past when it time, time to be, but it's called The Miracle Worker. It's a uh, claymation gospel story of Jesus. My favorite tidbit of information about this is that the guy who voice acts for Jesus is actually the same actor as Voldemort. So <laughs> it's a little, little interesting there. I didn't know Jesus was British, but apparently, according to this, it was. Anyways, uh, voice acting aside, uh, this is a really special moment. I just love that, this scene in that, that movie. I highly recommend it. Um, but his daughter is actually the one that says, you need to go to Jesus to, to, to come get me now, to come get me healed. Now, I don't know how biblically that part of it is, but regardless, Jairus knew if his daughter was going to be healed, he needed to go to Jesus, the only man who could heal his daughter. And of course, as he lays down this request, Jesus, come, lay your hands on my daughter. There's a crowd. And they're like, yo, this dude's like going to heal this man's daughter. We about to see something special. So as you can imagine, they got excited. The Bible says that thronged around him. Thronged usually really means like packed in, like sardines and like bumping in. And it's, it's almost like a mosh pit going down the road here. So people are ready for another miracle. They had heard about it, and now they wanted to see it for themselves. So let's continue. Verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered under many physicians. Yes. And had sent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and come up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body she was healed of her disease. So in the midst of this crowd, we have a thrumming, this thrumming with excitement for a miracle. We meet our second character, a woman. She's unnamed, so we don't know her name, but with a debilitating ailment. Mark isn't too specific. Uh, he just says she's been bleeding for 12 years. Um, we don't need to go into specifically what that meant. But the implications on her life were drastic. Uh, due to this fact, she would have been considered unclean. Now, ceremonially unclean doesn't necessarily mean she needed to have a bath every day, but it meant she could not participate in the operations of the temple. Uh, she was in a desperate condition. And uh, because of this, she couldn't act, interact with others. She couldn't uh, if she was married already, she probably would have been divorced. But if she wasn't married, she couldn't get married. Uh, the, the reason why is it, most women at that time, if they were seen as not being able to give birth or if they're un unclean like that, they just would have made an excuse to divorce her, basically. Uh, and according to Jewish ideas at the time, if a woman touched anyone, she made them also ceremonial, ceremonially unclean for the rest of the day. And any uh, un uncleanness would not allow them to take part in any aspect of uh, Israel's worship either. So, by the very law of her people, she was divorced from her husband, could not live in her home, she was ostracized from all society, must not come into contact with her old friends, she was excommunicated from the services of the synagogue, and thus shut out from the women's court in the temple. 
Now that sucks. Like, that would be rough for a week, which is typically what would happen. But for 12 years straight, she had no friends. She had no family that she could interact with. She had no community. So she needed a cure. She's a desperate lady. Now the passage says she heard the reports about Jesus. Just as Jairus knew about Jesus, so did this woman. But due to her uncleanliness, anyone she touched in the crowd would have also become unclean and been affected by her. But she needed to reach Jesus. So she goes secretly, all Assassin's Creed, through the crowd, like, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Nobody knows what's going on here. Uh, yeah, if she made her condition known, she'd be in big trouble. And uh, everyone was going to find about, out about her disease. So sneak she did. And here is where we get something extremely interesting. She comes up to Jesus, again, secretly, nobody knows, and touches his clothes. Now, first of all, there's no precedence for that in the Bible at this point. We uh, see later in Acts that similar types of thing happens, especially with uh, Peter's. I think it was like handkerchief or clothing or something like that. Uh, but we hadn't seen this yet. Usually Jesus, he would lay his hands on people and pray for them and they'd be healed. Or just usually to say be healed and they'd be healed. Uh, or uh, in the case of, I think it was uh, Centurion, they, he just said, your servant is well. And they weren't even close to each other. So there's no precedent for this touching of clothes and getting healing. Um, but this shows that she has at least an, a little bit of an understanding of God, but more based off of folk tradition. So not really a actual, like, true understanding of who God was, but more of like, how did I describe this? Basically, when people understand things uh, improperly, it's usually superstitious. Habits will be formed and practices are formed that aren't really correct. And that's where this idea kind of comes from. She's like, ooh, there's something magical about him, so you just touch his clothes. Like, I'm going to be good. Um, and of course, despite this incorrect theology, she touched his clothes and is miraculously, miraculously healed. She literally feels in her body that she is healed. Now imagine the relief and the emotions that went through her mind in this moment. 12 years, and then boom, like that, you're healed. As this had been happening, the crowd had been bumpling and jostling along, and so she kind of starts to back away into the crowd. She secretly approached, got healed, and then she's like, I'm going to fade back into in uh, obscurity. Nobody's going to know what happened. I'm going to be safe. Now let's continue again. Verse 30, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But this woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So Jesus immediately perceives what goes on here. That power had gone out for him. Now this typically just means that a lot of people will hypothesize, oh, he was left without power, and that's not really true. It's just he kind of noticed that power had kind of been used. Um, I hypothesize that he probably felt something maybe similar whenever somebody was healed, but we don't know. Who knows? 
but he obviously noticed it this time. So he asks a very simple question, who touched my garments? And of course, the mulling, mobbing crowd comes to a screeching halt. And uh, the first thing I think about is poor Jairus. Jairus has like been leading Jesus to his home to heal his daughter this whole time, desperate to get his daughter healed. And suddenly we're stuck. And Jesus is looking around in the crowd for somebody who touched him. And everybody's like, everybody's been touching you. Like, <laughs> so Jairus, I can only imagine, he's like, no, 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 no. We, we can't stop. We need to keep going. His faith was being put to the test. And of course, his disciples are also super confused. Uh, I love the way they express this. A modern way to express this would be, uh, bruh, everybody touching and bumping into you. What's the big deal? Despite their complaining, Jesus waits. And our woman comes forward with her confession. And this is such a powerful moment. Mark says she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. Her secret and uncleanliness is now on display for all to see. She is at the mercy of them. Now, she probably could have still backed away out of fear and hid, but she didn't. She comes forward certain that she'll be in big trouble. And I can only imagine the roller coaster of emotions running through this poor lady. She's desperate to be healed. She gets healed. Imagine the excitement. Now Jesus is calling her out in front of everybody. And she's like, holy crap, what's going on? <laughs> it's just up and down and up and down. And after she confesses, then Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So we're going to settle a little bit on this. And I'll unpack this a little bit. I got a whole page just dedicated to that verse. Here we come to our first full example of faith. This woman had known about Jesus' healing power, but her knowledge was incomplete, superstitious, and at best only a glimpse into who Jesus, what Jesus was and who Jesus was. But despite this, she was healed. Her faith was in the person of Jesus, not the act of the healing not the knowledge of him. Her faith was in Jesus himself. Now, uh, our interns will recognize this name, or in past interns, but a man named Dwight Pentecost wrote the words and works of Jesus Christ. You just read that last weekend. He uh, has something to say about this that's really profound. He says, this woman's action was significant. A subject, subject would normally kneel to touch a hem of the king's robe to show loyalty and submission to his authority. Such an action preceded sorry, the presentation of a request to, the, request to the king by the subject. Hence, this woman's act showed her recognition of the royal authority that belonged to Christ. This was the basis of her request for help. So basically, we see this woman uh, express her need for healing in a way that normally a subject would address a king uh, in, when they're in need. Um, whether she did this intentionally thinking like, oh, he's the king, I'm going to go touch his clothes uh, or not, I, I can't really confirm that. Dwight Pentecost seems to think that's exactly the case. Uh, I, I think it's maybe even more likely that she reacted to him in a way that was culturally appropriate to her uh, understanding of this man. He had healed before. He would do it again. He was her only hope. And what's so profound about this scene is this simple act of faith is so simple, yet it was terrifying for her. She, all she had to do was walk up to Jesus and touch his clothes, 
yet terrifying in the face of the backlash and danger she could have received due to making them those around her unclean. And yet something else is also profound. As I mentioned before, she would normally, if she touched other people, make them unclean. Yet when she touches Christ, her uncleanliness is cured. It's healed and restored. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. He also reaffirms the fact that she's been healed. Uh, One of the things, reasons why she was called out in the first place, because Jesus just could have left it, touched her clothes and touched his clothes, and then she kind of goes away and she's healed. But he specifically calls her out to know, for her to know that she was healed. This sick woman, even though her faith had elements of errant superstition, she believed in the healing power of Jesus. And the border of his garment served as a point of contact for that faith. There are many things we could find wrong with this woman's faith, but more than anything, write this down. Her faith was in Jesus. The object of faith is more important than the quality of faith. Let me say that again. The object of your faith is more important and the quality of your faith. So many times we talk about, did you have enough faith? Is your faith enough? And we talk about that as, as a quality, as if faith could be something measured uh, like that. But it's not about that. It's about who is your faith in. And there's only one person that we can have faith in like that. And so often we as Christians, we put our faith in what surrounds Christ versus Christ himself. You know, we put our faith in a healing act, whether we're going to be rich one day, whether we're going to be all right, and stuff like that. But our faith, Jesus calls us to faith in himself, not the things that surround him, the things that he'll do for us. Now let's continue. Verse 35, and we'll go right through the end through here. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any farther? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know of this and told them to give her something to eat. I wanted you to notice something really quick. She is 12 years old, woman who was sick, been sick for 12 years, same amount of time. I don't know if there's any significance in that, but it's just a cool tidbit. Anyways, this next part starts out pretty straightforward. While Jesus was occupied healing this woman and, and ministering to her, 
Jairus is like, come on, we need to go. Don't be messing with this lady. Uh, and people from his house come and say, your daughter is dead. He gets the worst confirmation of his worst fears. Now we can safely assume that Jesus was beginning to grieve. Jairus, not Jesus. Jairus was beginning to grieve at this moment. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. Only believe. Do not fear. Now I'm not going to put this in my own words. I stole, I stole this. I'm uh, quoting a man named David Gizuk. Um, he's uh, from Blue Letter Bible. He wrote a Bible study on this passage, and I really like the way he phrases this. So I wanted to quote this. Jesus tells Jairus two things. First, he must stop being afraid. It sounds almost cruel for Jesus to say this to a man who lost his daughter, but Jesus knew that fear and faith don't go together. Before Jairus could trust Jesus, he had to decide to put away fear. Second, Jesus told Jairus to only believe. Don't try to believe and be afraid at the same time. Don't try to believe and figure it all out. Don't try to believe and make sense of the delay. Instead, only believe. Now, what was Jairus supposed to believe? The only thing he had to believe was the word of Jesus, the promise. Everything will be made well. Everything else told him this situation was hopeless, but the word of Jesus brought hope. So this is our second example of faith. Our first example, if you remember, was this very simple act of faith by this woman in the person of Jesus, not in the surrounding, but in the person. But Jairus is called out here to a radical act of faith, trust. Even though everything is hopeless, trust. Jesus basically says, don't mourn yet. All will be well. And as they continue, Jairus is clinging onto this last thread of hope he has left, his hope in Jesus. Now, Mark states that Jesus allowed none else to follow him. So the crowd's like left and they're probably all like, oh man, like we wanted to see a miracle. And they kind of missed a little bit the miracle that was happening with this woman because they were probably all confused. Um, but these uh, guys that Jesus takes with him, Peter, James, and John, these were his closest disciples. And uh, when they arrived at the house, they find this commotion. Now, Mark wouldn't have used the word commotion if it was just a few people weeping. But historians talk about it was very typical in this time in Jewish culture to have professional mourners that were uh, used to help facilitate the family's grief. Now, I thought this was kind of sounds kind of silly um, to have people would come and basically help you cry because somebody died. You, you don't really need to help facilitate grief. But even the poorest families were required to have at least two professional mourning, mourners, minimum. So as we remember from earlier, Jairus was wealthy, right? So he probably had quite a few so on top of family members uh, grieving, we have these randos wailing. And I really mean randos. They're just people that did this for a living. So it should come as no surprise that when Jesus says, why are you mourning? She is sleeping, not dead. That they laugh at him. They have no stakes in this matter. They're not, the people who are laughing at him are not her family members. They're literally just randos. And they knew she was dead. They were around dead people all the time, pretty much every day. It's their job to be around dead people and mourn for them. 
But what these people failed to understand was who Jesus was and his eternal perspective. And from his viewpoint, they had no reason to, uh, sorry, from his viewpoint, her death was but sleep. So Jesus kicks them out. He has no reason to keep them around because they, they, they have no faith in him. They, they're just going to be a distraction for everybody else. So he's like, out, get out. Now Jesus finally arrives at our little girl that we've been waiting for this whole passage. And her poor parents who are distraught but hopeful in him. And three disciples in tow. Now, I, I find this moment very special. Jesus speaks uh, Talitha Kumi, which is uh, Aramaic. Aramaic was the common language spoken at the time. Um, pretty much everybody spoke Aramaic and a little bit of Greek, usually. Greek was kind of like uh, language of business. Um, and probably a little bit of Latin as well for some educated people, but most people would have spoken uh, in this area, Aramaic. Now, Jesus speaks this with such tenderness and affection. Uh, let me share a little bit of story. So, when I wake Debbie up, I'm not the most soft. I usually am like, poke, 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 wake up. All right, shake her. Or sometimes I'll walk in the room and, it's great to be alive, just to <laughs> arouse the sleeping Debbie. And she's not a fan. She complains very often that I should be much more gentle and sweet when waking her. Of course, Jesus is not like this. He's not a buffoon like me. But this uh, phrase in Aramaic uh, that he says, Talitha Kumi, is some, one of the really interesting things about it is none of the other gospel writers who share this same story, which this same story appears in Matthew and in Luke. It doesn't appear in John. Um, but it does appear in Matthew and Luke. They don't share this phrase in Aramaic. Actually, uh, in Matthew, nothing is said. We don't know what Jesus said according to Matthew. And in Luke, all it said is he says, little girl, wake up. Um, so Mark is the only one who shares the Aramaic here, and that's been, of course, passed down through translations, kept in Aramaic. It's not like we added that in there. Um, one of the things I find so interesting about this is, so Matthew was left with the crowd. He wasn't there in person. Luke Greek, and probably not a Christian at this point. John was there, but so was Peter. Now Mark, uh, also known as John Mark, um, was with Peter for five years during ministry. And uh, many of, basically everything that Mark wrote down is what Peter said and that Mark kind of recorded. Uh, and in many ways you can talk about the, the gospel of Mark as the gospel of Peter. Even though Mark was the writer Peter was in that room with this little girl, being when she was raised from the dead. So he specifically hears Jesus say, Talitha Kumi. And for me, this really helps confirm the eyewitness account of this passage. Because even though John Mark's the one writing it, he's hearing it from Peter, who was there. So Peter would have said, I heard Jesus say Talitha Kumi, and she, she came alive. Mark, Matthew didn't hear that. Luke definitely would not have heard that. And with that, we wrap up our story. Now, Jesus strictly tells Jairus here and his family to not tell others about what happened. However, in Matthew, we hear that news of this spread throughout the whole region. So obviously, 
even though Jesus didn't want it to spread, it did. What do you know? People like to share stories of crazy things. Yeah, and this is our second example of faith, is this faith that Jairus has, this trust, radical trust, when all else, when all hope is lost, he put his trust in Jesus, on the promises of Jesus. And here we'll finish up with a question. What is faith? And I have a lot written down here. I'm probably going to try to not, I don't want to take too long, so I'm not going to include all of it. But during the Reformation, if many of you remember from history class, early 1500s, one of the doctrines that was uh, stressed was sola fide. Sola fide just means faith alone. Uh, And the reason why uh, is the Catholic Church at the time was uh, stressing more works, being a good person would save you versus faith. Uh, And the Reformers were like, we gotta gotta define this a little better. Uh, And it also primarily comes from Hebrews 11. Uh, where many of the Old Testament heroes are described as having faith, and that's what's counted as righteousness, not their actions, but their faith. Uh, And during this time, they tried to express what was faith. You know, Calvin, John Calvin, if many of you have heard of him, uh, he stressed knowledge. Luther emphasized trust must be present. But both of those are components of faith, but not faith itself. Now, knowledge it does play a very big role in faith. You can't really have faith in something that you don't know about. If you've never heard about Jesus, you have no way to know about Jesus. So there's very little you can do in your role to, to have faith in him. However, many people have taken knowledge too far. And basically, as long as you just know a secret, the exact thing that happened, that's, you know it perfectly, that's, that's your faith. This is called Gnosticism, that a secret knowledge is what saves you, and that's uh, called heresy. We don't, we don't like Gnosticism. So knowledge is a part of faith, but not faith itself. And from there, we go on to belief. Belief and faith are often used interchangeably uh, in our typical speech, uh, and sometimes they're, they're used... Uh, not necessarily interchangeably, but in, in similar usage in the Bible too. Belief is related to knowledge in that it is accepting a certain knowledge as true. Another way to say this is assenting to or agreeing with a certain doctrine or understanding. So both of our characters in these stories, the woman and Jairus, they both knew about Jesus, but they also had to say and believe that what they knew about Jesus was true. Now Jairus was probably part of the local political groups that were after Jesus, uh, and again, back to that movie I mentioned, in the, he was in a council where they're like, if anybody associates with Jesus, then they're not of God. And so I don't know how true that story exactly is. But Jairus was basically having to go against the, the rest of the political people at the time, what they were saying about Jesus. He had to believe. Now, Donald Blesch, uh, one of the, uh, the, the theologian, theologian that we study as in our internship, He uh, has a really interesting kind of quote about uh, belief. He says, In following Christ, we must also commit ourselves to the gospel concerning Christ. We do not really know him until we understand his mission. We do not really believe in him unless we also believe in what he tells us in the scriptures. Yet our beliefs about him must not be confused with our personal fellowship and communion with him, which is deeper than belief, though inseparable from it. 
This personal relationship with Christ definitely involves belief in his deity and saving work. And here's where you want to write this down. But it is possible to have the right belief without a living faith. I'll repeat that again. It is possible to have the right belief, know the right thing, without having a living faith, a saving faith. But of course, we cannot have faith if we don't first believe. So belief is a component of faith, though not faith itself. Another component of faith is trust. We have to trust in what we believe in. In our passage today, Jairus, despite all odds, had to trust Jesus that his daughter would be well, even though she was dead. At some point for all of us, our knowledge will fail us and our belief will fail us because of our feelings, because of circumstances. They will overcome us. And this is, of course, uh, really where faith starts to shine, starts to prove itself different from belief, not knowing the right thing, not believing the right thing, but trusting the right thing even when you don't feel like it's right. Hannah Whittle-Smith, some of you may know who she is. She uh, describes this in a perfect way. Sight is not faith. Hearing is not faith. Neither is feeling faith. But believing when we cannot see, hear, nor feel is faith. And everywhere in the Bible, uh, it tells us our salvation is to be by faith. Therefore, we must believe and trust before we feel, but often against our feelings. So, I want to share another story. So, this summer, I was uh, at our family camp in Connecticut. And uh, my six-year-old niece, her name's Lydia. I wish I had a picture, but I didn't have a chance to put that together for you. But she's really cute, blonde hair. Doesn't look like what I thought a McConnell would, because we don't have blonde hair. We have brown hair. But she uh, was learning how to swim without flotation. And, uh, of course, we are, you know, telling her all these things. And at, at one point, though, she's just too afraid. She literally said, I'm too heavy to swim. I sink. And I'm like, you're not too heavy. You weigh literally like one-fifth what I do. <laughs> Maybe even less than that. You're not too heavy. That's not what this is. Uh, regardless, all she knew was that it was hard and that she would sink. So I, had, I stood out kind of in the, in the water, up to here in the water. So she was completely uh, unable to touch the ground. And uh, maybe 20 feet from the steps. And she just kept swimming back and forth. Every single time, though, she was scared. And she has this moment of hesitation before she kind of jumps toward me. But the more and more she did it, the more and more she began to trust me. And even though that fear cropped up every single time, even though her feelings were saying, oh, it's dangerous. <laughs> Don't go swimming. It's scary. She says, I trust that Elliot will keep me from drowning. Uncle Elliot, as she likes to call me. And this, this is what we're talking about. She knew and believed that I would catch her. But despite that, her fear kept cropping up every time. She had to trust in the face of fear. She had to believe in the face of fear. The next role in faith that we have is surrender. The woman who was healed had a chance to hide away in obscurity or come forward and surrender to Jesus' lordship. The same was with Jairus. He had a way he thought things would go. 
But when that started to fall apart, he began to grieve. However, Jesus called Jairus to surrender his grief to him. If Jesus is the king of our lives and the Lord of the universe, yet we refuse to allow him the lordship of our lives, we neglect the very thing we believe in. When Jairus says a, sorry, not Jairus, when Jesus says a command, it's not a suggestion or a recommendation. It's a direct order. Surrender requires putting ourselves on the cross before following him. It requires laying down our lives, our desires, our way of thinking, so that he can give it back. Surrender requires obedience. Not recommends, requires. And this is a component of faith where it goes beyond belief. Belief makes you comfortable because you can sit there and believe the right thing, but you're sitting there. You ain't doing nothing. Now, there is a difference between faith and good works. But good works are another component that result from our faith, right? And that's where surrender comes in. Now, for every single person, that looks different. Just because, you know, the way Caleb works out his, you know, operations of faith and follows Jesus in surrender, it's not going to look like Pastor Nino. It's not going to look like Andrew. It's not going to look like Micah. Nor is it going to look like Autumn. It's going to look different for each person. But regardless, surrender is a part of faith. And we'll come to our last component that I, now this isn't a, a whole exhaustive list, but the last component of faith is hope. Hope in Jesus' promises, in his return, and that all the craziness of this world will be made right. The woman who was healed in our passage clung to hope. Uh, when you're, you know, rock climbing, if you're belt that you're locked into comes loose. You're going to hang on to that rope for dear life because you're going to die otherwise. That's how we need to cling to Jesus and to his hope. Jairus clung to the same hope that his daughter would be healed and continue life. Both of them clung to the hope that Jesus would be the one responsible. They knew there was no other way. Hebrews 11 uh, verse 1 describes this very well. It says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Uh, we oftentimes call this our blessed assurance, uh, the assurance that Jesus, A, has saved us, B, is coming again, and C, will make things right. And of course, there's small bits of hope that involve in that. So in all this, what are the components of faith again? We've got knowledge, belief, trust, surrender, and hope. This is not a checklist. I want to repeat that. This is not a checklist. Because I don't want to make faith into something you go, boop, 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 boop. Okay, I got faith. I'm good. Faith is not a checklist. Now, uh, C.S. Lewis talks about faith in two chapters of his, of his mere Christianity. I recommend it. I wanted to include some of him as well, but we're at 39 minutes. I don't want to go much longer. So, uh, but highly recommend it. He talks about faith being a virtue as well as belief. Basically, you need to believe to have faith, but you also need to, faith is not something, oh, I believe in it once and boom, you're good. It's beyond that. It's a virtue. So in closing, can we have the band come up? I want to talk about how do we apply this to our lives. What can we exern, exern, learn 
from this examples of faith that we saw today, this faith that the woman had in Jesus himself and uh, who he was, and this faith that uh, Jairus had in trusting Jesus. And the first one is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Um, one of the things for those who's gone through D group, they've uh, heard before is uh, seek the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Another way to say that is look at Jesus and everything else will work out. And uh, just to add, add to this, I just want to read to you a, the lyrics from a song. It's just four lines, but it's, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Many of you know that song. Uh, it's very simple. But we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Number two, we need to step out in trusting Jesus. So we'll get, like the woman, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus himself. And like Jairus, we need to learn to trust. Uh, part of this can be done on Sundays when you're singing. Uh, maybe just be a little less afraid of looking strange. You step out a little bit. Or when uh, we have an altar time, stepping out in faith that Jesus will work through that and uh, coming down to the front. Uh, but also, can, you know, what are you afraid of? You know, how can you learn to actively trust and not fear, trust in the face of fear? You know, the Griscos, I, don't, I hope, hope you don't mind me sharing this, but for you guys, you guys are terrified for Matt, I'm sure. Because Matt, if you don't know, has uh, type 1 diabetes. And uh, there's a lot of fear there. But despite that fear, you can trust that Jesus will make all things right, right? That's the kind of faith we, we need, right? That's the kind of faith we, we want to have. And so for you today, I just want to challenge you. Uh, if you already are a believer in Christ, uh, just maybe take a close look at what yourself and be like, what's, how am I operating in faith? How am I, uh, you know, working this out, you know? And just spend some time thinking about that, searching and seeing what, what, what you lack. Do you need to maybe trust Jesus a little more? Do you need to learn to learn more about him? Uh, do you need to uh, learn to surrender more, right? And number two is if you don't know Jesus yet, you aren't a believer. Um, I just want to challenge you to, to step out in faith there as well and say, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to hear your name, and I want to praise your name. Um, and if, it, if that is you today, um, I'm not going to have you raise your hand or anything like that, but maybe if you have somebody you trust uh, near you, uh, talk to them and be like, hey, how can I uh, learn to trust God? How can I learn to surrender to God, to know about God? And uh, as we sing, they're going to sing, I think, a song about promises and trusting Jesus' promise. And uh, just take that time to, to focus on him. So, awesome. Let me pray and then they'll, they'll go. Jesus, we thank you for, for your word. We thank you for this, uh, this passage we read today uh, in this wonderful kind of uh, circumstance that we read about where uh, this woman was healed of her disease and this uh, little girl was raised from the dead and the examples of faith that are there. And uh, God, we are inspired by them. Uh, but also challenged by these examples of faith. And uh, Lord, I just pray that as we 
are working through that today, God, in our minds and just trying to understand what it all grasps because I didn't, I wasn't able to address all that faith is. It's, it's so much more than what I can express in words. Uh, but you know, God, and I just pray that you'll make that clear to us uh, and that you will fill us with faith, that your Holy Spirit will fill us with faith today. And in Jesus' name, amen.